This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. English photographer David Wright has documented the diverse culture of his country over the years. Everything from politics, fashion, language, religion, class, customs, and the traditions. David cut his teeth photographing the early punk scene in London, then finding work in a hospital as their photographer. He always kept his camera front and center on the happenings in the UK. So I was a photographer, and I'm surrounded by all these people walking around looking really weird um, and, uh, you know, very bright and vibrant. And I just thought, right, well, what's, what, what can I do as a punk photographer? What, what's the punkiest thing you can do <laughs> if you're a photographer? So what are the traditionalists all up to? All right, well, there's the F64 club over there <clears throat> with their 10-8 cameras and, you know, sharp focus landscapes like Ansel Adams and all the rest of it. I know what, I'll just um, take things completely out of focus and see what happens. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from Emmy winners, college professors, fashion designers, and street photographer John Free. Most photographers feel guilty about their doing, so they kind of shy off. So I'm completely convinced of how great photography is, and of course it's embarrassing for me too to get close to somebody. But there's more. it's so powerful that I can't let that happen. I've got to get that picture because it's so powerful. So you have to be unhuman and go beyond your instincts a little bit without being a, a crush on someone, without disturbing someone. The rest of my conversation with John can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with David Wright. Maine Farmhouse Brands was started by Dan McCool, a healthcare professional. His goal was to make premium soap. Most people may not realize how important the right soap is for their health and the difference between soap and detergent. Soap is made from natural ingredients like animal and plant fats whereas detergent is made from synthetic, often harsh chemicals, even fossil fuels like petroleum. Maine Farmhouse Brands makes their own soap with natural ingredients, free from harsh chemicals. So if you want to keep your skin healthy and clean, I would recommend using Maine Farmhouse Brands soap instead of detergent. You can find their body wash, shaved soaps, laundry soap, and beard oils, and more at mainefarmhousebrands.com. I have got the right man on the podcast today. How are you doing, David? Hi, I'm pretty good, Matt. Thanks very much. Uh, it's it's your evening. It's my morning. We're uh, we're a continent away. You're in you're in England. How is uh, the weather and everything there? <clears throat> well, I live in the Yorkshire Dales, and the weather's very changeable. We've had snow a week ago and ice, and now we've got beautiful clear sky, sun setting. You know, I was out there taking a couple of snaps earlier on uh, for my series uh, Christmas in the Yorkshire Dales, which is just, you know, self-indulgent yeah. stuff about Christmas and landscapes and decorations. I've never been to that part of the country. What is it like? What, what's, what am I looking at? Are you, if you walk me through, what am I going to see if I'm oh, living it, your neighbor? It's absolutely beautiful. It's um, undulating. um green hills um 
and then they rise up with two moors with bracken on that goes purple in the winter time <clears throat> the uh the um the higher it goes the more you become familiar with the, it's a, there's glaciation happening there because the valleys can be wide flat <clears throat> you know and then they rise up wow. all the buildings and all the walls are made of, dro- of the sort of york yorkshire stone which is either gray or yellow Lots of dry stone rule, uh, uh, walls between the pastures and sheep by the ton <laughs> everywhere. It, it's just wonderful. It's all it's it's as nice as Scotland, but different and not as remote. Okay. How and, what... and, and the Dales is noted because um, there's like about five. I think it's five rivers that run down through them, and that's why they're called the Dales. That each one's got its own river. Okay. What's the biggest city near you? City? Yeah. Um, I think it might be Leeds South or York East. Okay. Manchester West. (laughs) Where did you grow up? Where did young David uh, start running around? Well, those of your listeners who know their accents will have detected, firstly, not only am I English, <laughs> but you might have noted the twang of kind of East London. I'm, I am I was born right in East London, sound of Bow Bells, Cockney and all that. But the moment I was born, I was whisked off to Essex to a place called Hornchurch, which is near Romford. Um, and so I grew up in that area, sort of Essex became the London Borough of Havering. Okay. Lived there and I lived in Essex right up until um, uh, a couple of years ago and then moved up to Yorkshire. If I don't have an accent by the end of this podcast, uh, I'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, are you an only child or you have siblings? No, um, I had two sisters older. One lives in America, Rhode Island. Oh, okay. Um, older than me and the other one she died of cancer when she was about 40 something okay did did you grow up in a household full of artists was that kind of uh, uh something that led to the camera or are you the black uh, sheep of the family yeah <laughs> i think well i think there was always the potential for <clears throat> uh, my sisters my oldest sister is a bit kind of wayward and she went off at 16 to sort of Spain um, with her caftan and her tent. Um, but she's a, hairdre- she's a hairdresser. And she met this American guy, um, uh, uh, American sailor. And um, so they came back, got married, and then went off to America. <clears throat> um, my other sister, uh, she lived uh, locally. She could play the clarinet, and she was very sporty. My dad was an engineer. <clears throat> I always thought that's completely opposite to where I was. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so when I was about, I think 14, he said, right, well, we need to have a think about your career. You need to be a doctor. <laughs> so we looked into that and I, I thought, you know, I'm not sure about that. And then he said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, agriculture, forestry. So we looked at forestry and we're told don't go into forestry. They're mechanizing it. And so there'll be very little employment agriculture. So I had a place at, at a local agricultural college. Uh, to go and do a degree in farm management, and that was it, all set. Uh, but I was doing an A-level, um, one of my A-levels in the sixth form, um, which is what, sort of 16 to 19 years old, was um, art. And I was very interested in painting, and <clears throat> we got to almost the end of school, and I 
I was thinking, do I really want to go and do farming or would I rather go and do painting? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I decided painting and I had a friend, he was also going to art college. So we had, we decided, you know, it was going to be go to art college. Um, and I, how do I tell my dad, who's an engineer, <laughs> but he was very understanding. He said, well, you do whatever you want to do, you know, it's your life. <clears throat> so I went and did a foundation in art and design. That's one year you do all of the different disciplines. And it was during that time I discovered the camera and I thought, wow, this is not only magic, but it's much quicker than painting. <laughs> I can get ideas out, you know, it, it almost instantaneously. So I got interested in photography. Then I was looking to think, where do I go and do my degree? And it was uh, my mum started fishing around finding different colleges. Now, when you say you discovered the camera, did someone introduce it to you or was there a class? How did you? Yeah, yeah. you had to do a, like a, a module okay. on photography. You know, you did painting, you did graphic design, you did ceramics, um, <clears throat> did film, and you did photography. You know, you do a bit of everything. Right, and the touch idea it. At the end yeah. of that, you, you make your mind up and go off and specialize. <clears throat> so what was the um, hook? What What kind of got you? You know, I have no idea, uh, apart from the fact it was magic. <laughs> it was the magic box. <clears throat> you know, you could, you, you took these pictures and, um, you know, I'd been taking, I'd had the odd go with my dad's camera, but I'd never really thought about it beyond, you know, well, I've, I've pressed the button and he goes off to get the stuff processed at the chemist. This time, you know, you take the picture, you go into the dark room, and you do all the film stuff with the chemicals and uh you know then you you see the latent image has come become visible um and then there's this whole idea of postponing the your kind of satisfaction or enjoyment when you press the button you don't really know what you've got you might have an idea but when you process it hold it up to the light and all the chemicals drip down, down your arm uh and you look at it you think oh wow you know that's where did that come from <laughs> and uh, that's the beauty of film photography over digital. You know, digital is there instantaneously, and you, you don't have that craft part of it anymore. What? So, so your dad had a camera around the house? Yeah, he had an old Ilford Sportsman. Okay, so there's a little bit of exposure. It wasn't like a complete rarity that you had no idea what a camera was like the house. was he? Did he take yeah. a lot of family photos? or? <laughs> he took loads of pictures on all our holidays, and he had slides, and we used to have a slide show, you know, when you work your way through all these pictures with people sitting on beaches or with their heads <laughs> cut off. <laughs> and they were very embarrassing, but um, the classic stuff, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, those embarrassing father photos that he took, and you look back and go, oh, my gosh, how could I have yeah. ever been a part of that? <laughs> yeah. So you're in class, you're falling for photography, how was that conversation with your father? Like, Dad, I might want to do this. <clears throat> yeah, that's it. I've, I've said I thought about it. You know, I've thought about farming, and as much as I love the idea, and I really enjoyed. You know, I, I was working as a full-time gardener, making quite good money in all people's houses in the neighbourhood, <clears throat> and I enjoyed growing things. But somehow, I thought, you know, visual imagery and sort of putting down something that, you know, that you've, you've thought about, you know, because I was very into kind of philosophical approaches to painting. <clears throat> you know, I loved thinking about why 
you why an image is important and you know and i got into the impressionists and when i started to think about you know what they were trying to do they were mixing color to try and get um sort of particular results mm -hmm. and then we were introduced to um you know renaissance painting and i suddenly realized that renaissance paintings are not just you know these people up on the wall you know religious pictures or but they're full of allegorical mystery you know they tell a story and you have to know the cues and what each thing means because it's not just you know it's a serpent it actually has bigger representation than being a little snake on the floor <laughs> yeah exactly so what was that first year like for you taking photos <clears throat> well discovering photographs um in foundation was sort of just messing about really mm -hmm. i did one one important thing which i have recently sort of resurrected and that was um i photographed a romford market uh in the 90, early 70s and pretty much just went along and photographed you know these stalls and things as if i was going to join it all together and make a big david hockney type okay joiner <laughs> um but other than that, you know, it was just lots of disasters, really. <laughs> but that's how you were learning, probably, right? <clears throat> yeah. And then my, I was going to say my mum found <clears throat> a college in London. <clears throat> and she said, well, this might interest you. So I went along to this college. I took no photographs. I just took drawings and <clears throat> a few paintings and did this interview. And they said, why do you want to do photography? And I said, well, you can see what I've been doing, but it's a bit too slow. And, you know, I want to really kind of get my ideas moving and you know use the camera to represent things in in the ways i wanted to do and um <clears throat> anyway i came away from that interview i thought i don't know what that was all about but anyway i got up in the place and later i found out that it's it was the number one college to go to to do photography <clears throat> in the country it's the hardest one to get into in those days it was like 30 places um you know no 60 places uh, for about sort of three or four hundred applicants, and then they divided into film and TV specialism and photography specialism in the second year. Um, subsequently, in my teaching career, <laughs> I've sent students along there, and you know they've gone along, and there's been thirty places, and there's been three or four thousand applicants, and uh, you know it's tough, you know. But we were lucky; we got three in in one year, you know, because <clears throat> it's about how you approach the interview. So. There must have been something in that interview about, you know, I don't really know why I'm here, but this is what I want to do. <laughs> so what was that like? How did that evolve your photography? <clears throat> well, if you can imagine uh, London in the mid-70s, <clears throat> um, it was uh, the place, I mean, London was dismal. There was strikes there was, you know, rubbish on every corner because the dustmen were on strike and <clears throat> the trains were on strike. We had three-day weeks. Um, in sixth form, I was sitting there um, doing my homework with a candle because the electrics were off. <clears throat> it, you know, there was no fire brigade. It was, it was, you know, the year of, the year of, I think it was the winter of discontent was somewhere in mid-70s. <clears throat> but, but then along came a new idea and it started in the colleges and what my college was one of them it was well we don't like all this and we're not going to play this game anymore <clears throat> we're going to reject it and we're going to do our own thing man 
<clears throat> and that was the beginning of punk. Punk began as a sort of an art form. It wasn't music and it wasn't fashion and black bin liners and safety pins. <clears throat> it was people just sort of saying, well, how can we do what we like doing in our way? So, for example, musicians said, well, you don't need to know how to play a guitar. You don't even need instruments. You can just bang away at anything, you know, in your garage. <laughs> so I was a photographer, and I'm surrounded by all these people walking around looking really weird um, and, uh, you know, very bright and vibrant. And I just thought, right, well, what's what What can I do as a punk photographer? What What's the punkiest thing you can do <laughs> if you're a photographer? So what are the traditionalists all up to? All right, well, there's the F64 club over there with their 10-8 cameras and, you know, sharp-focused landscapes like Ansel Adams and all the rest of it. I know what. I'll just um, take things completely out of focus and see what happens. I'll use the other end of the lens. And I had a Pentax KX with this 50mm lens that was a 1.4 or something like that. And uh, so when you completely blurred things, you got the most amazing effects. So I started in black and white, and another friend of mine, he was doing the same thing. We both sort of embarked on this journey, and in the second year of our college, <clears throat> I started um, getting interested in Gestalt and how um, Gestalt philosophy is <clears throat> something where you have to make up the missing parts. <clears throat> and the missing part, obviously, in a completely out-of-focus photograph is, well, what is it? Because <laughs> I can't make it out. <clears throat> and so... Um, the pictures themselves were very large colored pictures and they were beautiful to look at. You know, they, they looked like impressionist paintings, but I wouldn't say what the subject was. They had to work it out for themselves. And, um, and it caused a bit of a, a storm amongst, <laughs> <laughs> amongst the traditionalists. <clears throat> uh, you know, there were, I had it published in a number of magazines and there was lots of letters saying, well, why the hell do you have all that camera equipment? <laughs> And you end up with this stuff. It looks like you've used a pinhole camera or even worse, nothing at all. <clears throat> but it was brilliant. And, I, and it, I think, you know, I still look back at the work and think it, it not only was it radical and was it very philosophical, but it's just beautiful stuff to look at. And I could imagine if I had the money and made, say, eight foot by four foot prints of this and had an, a large warehouse, you would go in and you would just be surrounded by it thinking oh this is wonderful with brian eno music or something playing mm -hmm. in the background right was you look back at that young david were you quite stunned how daring you were to pull that off well i hedged my bets <laughs> <laughs> at the same time obviously i'm on a photography course you had to do the coursework but um I was taking sharp documentary pictures and then I got into landscape and bought myself a Pentax six, seven and embarked on um, a sort of a number of projects that were kind of um, to do with landscape <clears throat> and also to do with something which I call now paint box reality, which is to find um, semi abstract scenes where the colors are vibrant and probably often primary colors and uh, if you go to my website, you'll see a there's two series, Paintbox Reality and another one called um, Golden Arches, which is McDonald's. I went to um, America first time in 1982, I think, or 83, and photographed um, the Golden Arches <clears throat> McDonald's in Rhode Island, one of the few remaining. And these are really quite sort of flattened, abstract 
sort of areas of colour, and they're just so bright. Uh, and I shot them on X-Chrome <clears throat> E6 um, yeah. film, uh, which it's not quite Kodachrome, but you know you get a brilliant result with a Pentax 67. Right. What was your early equipment when you were first starting out before that 67? What were you shooting on? Well, I started on uh, at art college, a Practica or Zenith, one of those things. Um, <laughs> but then I got a Pentax KX, which I've still got and I still use. Wow, you still keep it. <clears throat> still use it, and it gives beautiful results. Um, I bought that because um, I remember seeing an advert by David Bailey and Don McCullen, who both said they used it, and I thought, oh, it must be good. Um <laughs> And then I got um, a Bronica two and a quarter square because I started doing weddings. <clears throat> but then I wanted to get a six seven, so I sold that to buy the six seven, um, and also with a bit of extra cash bought an old Rolly, <clears throat> a Rolly T, um, because I was doing weddings, so I could carry on doing them uh, with a Metz flash. So I've, I've worked my way through three Metz hammerhead flashes. Just bought a new second hand one this year. Um, and the Raleigh T uh, has developed a fault and I can't fix it. So I now I've got this old Yashica mat that um, uh, one of the colleges gave me. They were just junking them. And it makes perfectly good two and a quarter inch pictures. So I combined the Yashica mat with a, um, a hammerhead Met splash so that I can do fill in in daylight. Um, and quite a lot of the stuff that I've shot this year is all on that. And then, um, uh, Fast forward a little bit to about 1980, I collected old cameras. I've got about 150 Kodaks and, you know, box brownies and things like that. Um, and my wife's worried that we don't, you know, they're in boxes in, in the garage <laughs> and why do I keep them? <laughs> but anyway, uh, got all these cameras. And this fella next door, this old boy, Ernie, leaned over the fence one day, says, you you collect cameras, don't you? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, do you want this? I don't want it anymore. And he handed me this brown thing. <clears throat> anyway, it turned out to be a Leica, 1950s Leica. No. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, oh. I, I used it, and then I lost it. No, uh, you lost Ernie's <laughs> camera. <laughs> it disappeared um, in about mid-1980s disappeared completely and then it resurfaced about a month ago i was going through some boxes and i thought that's an interesting camera got it out opened it up i th thought it was i thought it was um an, a german camera um some old um you know what are they called um the ones that begin with c contacts or oh yeah, yeah, like contacts, yeah. anyway opened it up and there's a leica there i thought oh, brilliant so i've cleaned it up i'm gonna give it a test run soon take it out where did that thing hide for 20 years <laughs> Well, more than that, 40 years. But I have no idea. I mean, they're quite hard to use. You have to have a light meter or guess. Yeah. They're quite hard to load, and they're quite hard to focus because it's a range rangefinder mm -hmm. with a linkage, and it's only a tiny little window, about a centimeter square. Yeah, but it's really teeny back then. It might be quite nice to do the odd thing on it. Wow. It's, got to be, it's not a snapshot camera unless, of course, you just – Grit your teeth and uh, close your eyes and just point it <laughs> for the best. Zone focus at f11 and just go for it. Um, but then uh, I, I also use a Nikon um, f2. Okay. And I've got a couple of lenses for that, and I do a lot of work on that. That first 
you know, three, five years, did you have any struggles or were you starting to find success in photography? Um, I wasn't struggling, but I didn't want to go and do what quite a few of my friends were doing. And I sometimes wonder if I, I should have taken up uh, being an assistant in a studio for a photographer. <clears throat> um, I didn't want to do too much of other people's work. So I got a job as a um, medical photographer um, in order to subsidize my own work. So, and I did that. And then at a hospital, like, yeah. Um, What did you shoot? Everything. Oh my goodness. Like you do for your university. Mm -hmm. I did. And there's, there's some on my website. It's called the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. Just pictures of, operations and people messing about in um, contamination rooms with stuff and dentists. Wow. Was and that from that, from that, I then, um, I managed a sweet shop news agents for five years and, and got someone in to look after it. So I could go off traveling and doing landscape work. Um, and then after that, uh, in about 87, I got. I decided I wanted to finish that and go into teaching. So I got a job in you know in colleges teaching photography. All right, working at the hospital did that give you a good foundation for like every day we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and so kind of instead of just kind of wandering around, you know, unstructured, you had a little bit of structure in the early part of your career to kind of guide you. Yeah, it was very much that. Um, each day you'd get in and there would be a workload. Some would be shooting stuff. Some would be devin and printing. Sometimes it would be making slides. It would, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of everything really. Right. How did you enjoy teaching? <clears throat> well, I loved it to begin with. Um, it's like a lot of things, but uh, teaching photography is fascinating. And then I moved into film and TV production. So I taught film and TV production <clears throat> Um and uh, it was really, you know, I had great students. So, you know. Hey, are you was, are you still in London at this time? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, I only moved out of London um, about three, two or three years ago. Okay. So you, you've seen London change. Yeah. From those moments in the 70s to, you know, most recently. I mean, what a change it has gone through. It It's changed a lot. And <clears throat> um, it's changed from being quite threatening <clears throat> parts of it were quite threatening it, then it got gentrified um and now i don't really like it it's not <clears throat> i don't like i think it's like as you grow old big cities you know they're too fast and too noisy and too dirty right and yeah colorful and all of a sudden yeah and you can't drive a car i wouldn't be able to take my defender down there because of um you know they've got um emission control and congestion charge and all of that oh we're not a driving nation like america i love yeah. a, i love the fact that in america you can just drive up drive into a town or a city and you can pull up into a diagonal space outside the shop or in the malls and, and then you just go in and come out and mm-hmm. you know expect to find your wheels missing or a ticket <laughs> on your car <laughs> especially with that 110 you would do great here in america Oh man, you could take that bad boy anywhere. Well, uh, before that, years, you know, back in the ages, I had an American, um, well, it was a renegade Jeep. Mm-hmm. It just came over to England. 
it was a nice flash car it was an upgraded renegade and um it was like a real babe magnet <laughs> you know it was sort of, <laughs> you drove around and i got my uh, brown and white pointer dog sitting next to me leaning out with all the wind blowing his ears behind him <laughs> and rock and roll coming through the speakers <laughs> with the roof off uh david and the chick magnet um <laughs> How was, and this is one thing photographers are very sensitive about because they don't teach it, but how were you on the business side of photography early in your career leading to like, you know, maybe in the eighties and nineties, did you understand the cost of like what a print and how much you should get paid? And did you rely on lean on any mentors? How were you on the business side? Um, I didn't really um, spend much of my time trying to, um, be self-employed uh i did have quite a lot of stuff published in magazines but basically showed it and they said right we'll pay you 40 pound a page or whatever it is and uh, that was it so i but i developed a a very business-like mind um when i ran a shop so i know all about um the cost of things and the bottom line revenue income tax right everything you know so but yeah. I don't think I use much of it now. Yeah, because that's one thing, like, especially when you're younger, you don't really understand. You don't just take every job to say you have work because you're not going to get any money from that after how many hours it costs you, what you got to do for camera gear and insurance and taxes. And you look back and go, I made $4 or four pounds from that job and it should have taken or costed you 1000 so that's kind of the youthful photography mistake is not to understand the business side. Yeah, and the trouble nowadays is um, people think, you know, well, they've all got phones and things so with cameras in them. So, you know, the market for professional photographers nowadays is diminished. There's a few of them still doing um, sport and um, fashion and paparazzi and advertising. Right. But um, newspaper work, you know, they don't really want good photographs in newspapers nowadays. No, they just want photography. They don't want great photography. Yeah. When did you start to feel comfortable as a photographer where you felt like you could go out on any job and you can come back with exactly what you were envisioning? Was it around (coughs) 10 years did it take you or where was your feeling comfortable point? I think um, it it took a, a year or so. Okay. One of the things that um, uh, I focused on was the chemistry, the physics and the chemistry. I made it my business to learn all about uh, that aspect of it, not just about um, the picture itself. Um, so, you know, I wanted to make sure that, um, you know, if, if if I selected a certain exposure, I'd get a certain result. The Ansel Adams approach, right. you know, Right. It's uh, where do you picture exposure? You know, not quite zone system, but um, understanding, you know, the limits of most film, you know, it's, it's, you know, this, your average scene is 10 times brighter than anything you can get on a film, you know, the range. So there's that. And then there's the chemistry, what you can do with the chemistry to sort of hold back, push further, and what developers give you, you know, fine grain or, um, you know, high contrast results. Learned that quickly and learned about the 
you know, the cameras and the lenses and what would give you the sorts of results. So I got to a point where I could go out and think, right, that's it. Got that. Feel fairly confident. <clears throat> I still make mistakes, mind you. Sure. I still, I still make the awful cock up sometimes. <laughs> uh, shoot something and think, what, or process it and something goes wrong, you know, oh God, <laughs> not infallible. <laughs> You've lived through a wonderful time of watching film quality completely change, you know, from those films in the 70s to what it was in the 80s when it really was hitting its mark with the T-Max coming in with Kodak and Ilford and stuff. Did you notice or feel that help your photography as the film got better? Um, I think it did. But then I think I've revised my feelings because... Um, up until about a year ago, I used T-Max 400, um, quite a lot of my work. But then Kodak put their prices up, and the chemistry was became ridiculously expensive as well. So I looked elsewhere, and I found um, – I went back to um, Ilford HP5 oh. <laughs> for black and white, um, uh, which I think gives me a kind of – the night there's a sort of softness about it it's not got that t-max sharpness of grain but it's got a quality of its own um but when i look back at stuff i shot say in the 70s and 80s um for example if you look at the miners series uh that that was shot on i think it was kodak tri x 400 and it's got beautiful results it's you know it prints beautifully. Yeah, it looks fantastic. Yeah. Wait, okay, that minor series, how did you get involved in that? Um, I had the opportunity to go to Wyatt, South Wales for a week, and I went there, and um, I expected to go and photograph miners in kind of, you know, shafts and, you know, just doing mining stuff and right. the rest of it. Uh, which I did do. I photographed loads of different things, but I, what I worked out from it was that I was in a place now where these people were starting to feel the pinch. You know, we were in Callahan's years, so pre-Thatcher, but they were already starting to um, say, you know, mines were not viable and the pay had to be frozen. And the, there'd already been several strikes yeah, uh, I think there's one in '73, one in '75. I went in '77 or '8, '77, I think. Um, and I just thought I could see in the faces of the men something, you know, which seemed tired and I don't know, fed up with the world. <laughs> and it wasn't long before um, it all blew up. Another couple of years, Thatcher came in and said, "Right, we're going to discontinue mining in Britain." close them down and that was probably the worst thing for this country to close down uh heavy industry in the way that thatcher did it might have seemed right thing in terms of economics but socially um it, it doesn't work so you you know if you close let's say you close a mine or a shipyard as indeed they have done that that particular town was totally dependent and it's gone and they never recovered. You go to these places now, there is nothing there. <clears throat> There's no new industry, nothing. The people are you know, predominantly 
on the dole, um, you know, Social Security. Many of them are sort of, you know, still suffering from depression 30 years on. <clears throat> um, families have got into the rut of not looking for work. They come out of school and go straight onto the sort of, you know, benefits. <clears throat> um, what the cost really, you know, of getting rid of mining, if you carried it on, and yes, it would have been more expensive, but if you if you wipe something out, you then the country then has to pick up the tab. Right. So when they close the mines down, which are private, or they were national cobalt, but say so the private, you know, someone has to pick up the tab. So the taxpayer has to pay for all these people, and for years, and so you don't really gain anything. So having lost heavy industry, we don't make. You know, what do we make in England? I don't know what we make in England. There's a lot of stuff. You know, we don't see we seem to make which is not really worth having, like financial services and, and stuff like that. <laughs> But your average person, you know, they, they're not doing something purposeful like that. Was that something you're thinking about visually, pre-visualizing going <clears throat> into that town or to shoot those miners and say, okay, I need to capture this groups of men together after work or before work or in a pub? Like, was that something that, that went through your head? That's what I started to do when I was there. <clears throat> I realized that I needed to take pictures of people, <laughs> individuals. So I started to do it. Then the other <clears throat> tragic thing is that um, I didn't really do anything with those pictures. I think I printed one or two <clears throat> um, and then sort of forgot about them. And then a few years back, I was going through old negatives and I discovered them. And I thought, I'm sure I shot more than this. <clears throat> I found three rolls of them. Uh, and I couldn't find any more. I thought, I, I'm, I, I was there for a week. I must have shot, I don't know, 20, 30 rolls. <clears throat> but I've moved several times, and I know that I've lost quite a lot of stuff in those moves. <clears throat> for example, for example, I don't have any of the negatives now of the out-of-focus stuff. <clears throat> I've lost quite a few of the Kodachromes I shot in India in the 80s. <clears throat> and... Um, I just I have no idea where the you know the these pictures have gone. I, I spent um a day with a circus in London and our, our, you know before they were performing it was just rehearsing and one of the things they said oh, come with us up to the the public bars at Greenwich that's where we all go and wash and everything. So I went with them and um took pictures of you know these public bars where you know they don't don't use them anymore but <clears throat> but Travelers and people like that, that was what they did. Um, all of that stuff's just disappeared. Oh. I found some stuff, but lots of it has disappeared. I was lucky enough to find <clears throat> the Abattoir series and the, the Cremation series um, and uh, the Miners. And um, luckily, I by that time, I'd pres uh, preserved some of the stuff. So my, all my island in the 80s and 90s stuff, it was sort of neatly organized and preserved but the early stuff disappeared oh that's heartbreaking oh boy well you can't you yeah know, i know we, we we especially if you haven't lived through how much film and how to keep it was back then it was hard it was a lot of work I've, I've i've lost a lot of my work where i've sent it off and it never came back and then you reach out to that person and they're like well we we sent it out it was in transit or we had it in our library and it's gone. It's well, luckily, um, you know, Kodachrome was fairly, fairly reliable, mm -hmm. um, and and so was the lab that I took the stuff to for doing X Chrome. But 
everything else I processed myself. Okay. I did all my own processing. I never gave it to anybody else to process. How are you with subjects? Walk me through that process, especially like with the minors and stuff. Did you give them a lot of direction? Did you just kind of let them do their thing and you were like a fly on a wall? How did you approach that? Days, I think it's better if I talk about how I am now, because in those days I was young, inexperienced, fly on the wall. <laughs> I would pretty much take pictures as they were in front of me. Okay. I would get talking to subjects. Like <laughs> if you look at the cremation series, I got talking to the guys working there and got their stories. <clears throat> um, but now, no, now I have a different approach. It's very much about, uh, first of all, if possible, getting to meet the people and um, understanding them and getting them to sort of know what I do and why I do it and how I do it <clears throat> and engender some trust and maybe even show them pictures uh, or my website, you know, um, and then they, after that, they say, all right, okay, that sounds good. And then it'll be a, a combination of um, direction uh, and kind of, you know, snapping things, but then they, they're aware on there, but they've become confident and they sort of trust me. So they, they, they let me get on with it. But I, I don't adopt really a fly on the wall approach. I believe, um, you know, a subjective approach is my way of doing things. Um, and I think you have to connect emotionally wherever possible <clears throat> with your, uh, your subject. If you don't have a feeling about, um, what you're doing, it won't be as good or as strong. Yeah. When did you start to develop that skill? When was that switch for you from fly on the wall to making connections? <clears throat> I think probably, <clears throat> well, as I said, it probably started um, with uh, the cremation series. Okay. But I think it actually began in an odd way, really. It began as a wedding photographer. Interesting. I used to, uh, at some one point, um, I, I was doing weddings to earn money, but at various points in my career, <clears throat> I've gone back to weddings because um, I had to have a second job because the interest rate was so incredibly high, <clears throat> needed to earn money. <clears throat> but um, <laughs> weddings are one of those things that most photographers despise, <clears throat> and they and they look down on, and it's not serious work, you know, but the one thing that is serious about it is getting it right. You've got to get it right. You've got to get it right exposure-wise, and you've got to get it right to please the, the customer. <clears throat> so um, exposure-wise, you've got to know your, what you're doing, um, and then pleasing the customer is all about, first of all, you know, having a, a, a kind of relationship with them, you know, so you generally meet them in advance, mm -hmm. and you kind of need to talk to them. <laughs> you know, not not to just say, "Well, I'm just here flat, snapping away." And they they're more demanding now. I mean, I look at a wedding work now, and I think, "Gosh, it's so brilliant." Some of it, you know, I wonder how they got that. <clears throat> they must have really worked hard with their subjects. Mm -hmm. But it was doing. It was you know in the late seventies when. I started doing weddings and <clears throat> realized that that's the way forward. You, you're not, you're not a fly on the wall. You know, most weddings, you know, they want 
they might want it to look a bit like it's um sort of documentary or it's um you know vernacular <clears throat> but actually it's all highly posed right um and so you've got to have that relationship going with them and i realized that once you build that relationship people are really quite happy to help you with your job you know so they'll do pretty much what you want or they'll let you do how you want to do it around them yeah weddings are weddings are a great learning place especially if you could be like the second shooter and not have the primary responsibility but be able to just make some beautiful photos um, early in your career and then work your way to the one spot it's a really great uh, place to learn yeah and see i mean you can make like you said there are some stunning wedding photos being made today that were never thought of 50 years ago 40 years ago Mm. yeah how were you as a photographer were you a put it on single frame were you a were you a shoot a lot of frames you know, because we had film, so we couldn't really just blow through 20 rolls a day. We had to be very due diligent. But how were you as your, in your style? Yeah, um, I'm more decisive moment than splatter gun. A <laughs> <laughs> um, couple of frames of each sort of scene or thing, you know, is it. Now, if I, let's say I was in London <clears throat> photographing the climate change um protests <clears throat> that doesn't mean i take two frames in the day and that's it right but i might see one thing and think oh, i'll take two oh, oh, there's one particular picture <clears throat> it's of a woman looking she's quite close up to me <clears throat> and she's got a policeman just standing behind her and they've just arrested her and they're about to put her <clears throat> into the um uh police van i might have even sent you i don't know if i sent you that one right, you did yeah <laughs> but but uh, um, the thing about that is um, I had to set the camera, the lens had to be on, it was a wide angle lens, I set the camera on an average exposure. There was no time for focusing, no time for fapping around. I just jumped in, was about three foot away from her, took the picture and then took another picture or two. And then I was suddenly pushed off, manhandled out by the police. <clears throat> uh, so it's a case of there's there's the shot it's got to be one of those ones so you know i'm very much into the idea that you wait and you pre-visualize and it's all about timing and being in the right place at the right time for when you know something's going to happen uh and just hope it does (laughs) and that's how i approach anything you know photographic is to is to try and do it in a in a the minimum number because like you say shooting on film and I don't have motor drives and all of that. I was never into all that. It's very much crafting the result. Yeah. Knowing when that moment is going to happen. Yeah. And that I think comes from experience, but it also comes from, uh, as I already just mentioned, pre-visualization. And I think uh, having a, um, a, a foundation of painting and um, you know, the idea of framing is loosely based around composition. So um, being, you know, thinking about what's inside the frame, where you're going to stand and what's going to give you the, the maximum impact, the maximum meaning, <clears throat> moving things out of the way by moving yourself so that you don't have, you know, a light or a high-vis jacket or whatever it is you don't want, <clears throat> you know, 
so that and then just waiting to see if it happens in front of you and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't yeah exactly how many clients did you have maybe in the 80s and 90s were you were you working off of with whether it was magazines or commercial work <laughs> well how many did you have at one point uh, I count them on one hand <laughs> i didn't i didn't do um stuff for other people like i said i i was only interested in working on my own projects <clears throat> and then i would get them published in magazines okay, you know, okay so that's an interesting approach to do your own project and kind of then pitch yeah <clears throat> so um, there was a, a handful of three or four magazines that I knew the editors and every so often I would um, sort of contact them and say, I've got something here. Are you interested? <clears throat> so, you know, they would say yes or no. And, you know, then I'd. Because like you mentioned India, what got you to India? Uh, was that one of these things where you've got to go and find the source of the Ganges? <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> midlife crisis. <laughs> so, I don't know, something like that. But I went off to India, loaded up with the Pentax 6, 7 and 100 odd rolls of 120 exochrome. <laughs> and um, and that was it, up to the Himalayas and uh, way up to Base Camp Everest and then back down to India and spend a couple of months going around on trains, you know, to outlandish places like... Um, Benares, which is a holy city, Varanasi, where um, you know they will go down and the 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 ghats where they burn the um, where they cremate the bodies and put them in to the river. Right. Um, photographed all of that, <clears throat> um, and it was just uh, I liked it so much. I went back a couple of years later and did this similar thing. I didn't go to Nepal. I just went to India. How did you transfer? Um, or did you just keep all your film until the very end, or did you make you process your film as you went in India? No, it was color exochrome, so I just kept it all in a sort of bag <laughs> and hope hope the heat didn't affect it too much. You know, look after it <clears throat> or the cold. Right, I mean, minus twenty. Uh, At a minus twenty, what I mean, were you worried about gear and? You know, your cameras can freeze, things can break, you're gone that long. It's not like you can go to a corner shop and get gear fixed. Um, I think I was a bit worried, but I thought if I keep it warm at night and I don't let it get too hot in the day, I should be okay. I didn't ha I didn't go for um <clears throat> uh special harsh condition preparation. I didn't stick the cameras into them, you know, have all the work done on them. Okay. Just hope for the best, really. Man, I mean that's uh to have that midlife crisis and take your camera gear with you, I would be scared to death. Oh my god! <laughs> did did you ever have any projects that you thought, okay, this is going to be a really good one, and it didn't work? And then you had some where you're like, eh, I don't think this is going to be much, and then it turned out to be this unbelievable project that you were shocked that it snowballed into anything. Did you ever have that kind of yin and yang? <clears throat> Um, quite a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a great well, answer, David. <laughs> if you take, say, um, the, you know, the, the miners picture series, <laughs> um, that's actually become quite, you know, good for me in more recent years. In fact, <clears throat> um, I've published, a, had a book published, um, only a small thin one because there's only like 36 pictures, <laughs> but, um, I've, I've, 
I've entered a number of those pictures for competitions. I won an international competition with the um, <clears throat> the picture of the tired miner that I sent to you. Yeah, God. Um, that that lot. Whenever people see that, they all. I don't know what it does. I have no. I'm try, still trying to work out what that, how that picture works. <laughs> Is I think, it the fact that he's covered up one eye and he's just looking straight at you? Yeah, I think it's a lot because people can never put themselves in that kind of situation. They look at these men and go, uh, "You're miraculous. I cannot do that. I couldn't put that kind of work in." Yeah, <clears throat> um, the the island in the 1980s and 90s series. There's uh, there's loads of um, <clears throat> rolls of film. There's a hundred pictures in that series. Um, that's probably one of my favourite sets. Uh, I just love it. And it was done because um, I met my wife, who was Irish. Uh, her family owned this farm on the west coast, tiny little farm. <clears throat> so we used to go out there and um, you know meet the family and tour around. And I noticed Ireland was changing, so um, I decided to start documenting it to show my kids where, you know, their heritage, where <clears throat> half their family have come from. Because um, my wife's uh, mum was a family of 13 who all lived in this little farmhouse, stone farmhouse, with the animals up one end and they're up the other. <clears throat> um, so uh, I thought it's important to document these people, you know, and... Um, you wouldn't if you look through the series it depends how interested one is but they tell a story of a um a, a people a rural community that's um sort of seeing things change rapidly and seeing their country being dragged into the 21st century <clears throat> and the flat caps are swapped for the sports caps um and the old tracks becoming um four lane motorways and things like that <clears throat> and so um they just have a there's a kind of beauty about their kind of uh rural <clears throat> sort of uh, how do you put it really <clears throat> um the, the 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 landscape is just kind of deserted it's it's quiet it's it's beautiful um but it's and it's nostalgic <laughs> um and you know the people you know the men in their flat caps and their tweeds and <clears throat> the women in their pinnies you know <laughs> in fact there's one <clears throat> uh, one of my favorites is um as uh bridie linehan milking her cow <clears throat> and um uh, if you can find it it's uh she's kneeling down milking the cow by hand look more closely she's wearing her apron and she's got her hair in curlers yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's and you said it being dragged into the into now i'm sure a lot of them would like to stay how they had it and not really want a four-lane highway and change it to a sports cap um it was a simpler time but i'm sure they they love that time yeah and i think um many of us sort of yearn back for those halcyon days <clears throat> but many of them say i wouldn't want to return to that because if you didn't live through it <clears throat> you're just looking at it thinking no oh, i would have liked to have lived in those days but if you live through it <clears throat> where you know you didn't have much and you 
didn't wear shoes and uh you know it was a hard life and you had to go out you know to work at 14 and stuff like that and you're all crammed together in a start, tiny stone cottage you know it there's some aspects of that that people didn't like yeah do you think in, in a lot of it shows especially in your 70s work the miners the cement work um that they're a hardy people you guys are a hardy people you guys can really get through a lot i think that's i think that's what shows through a lot of the um the work done in that period if you look at uh, i mentioned janine Vidal's book about um falcon forge which is um it's in the midlands and it's all about um steelworks and men men in steelworks and blast furnaces and you know ship building and all that heavy industry where everything was really hard and tough and long hours and six day weeks you know they they must have been really tough yeah they had to be they had to be i mean i'm looking at some of these photos and these guys just they 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 look like they put in hours and they do it for the family and for the house and for the love. I mean, today people are bitching work, you know, having to go to work five days a week and they want to work remote three days a week and they don't want to work eight hour days. It's so funny how we've evolved to being so soft. Yeah, we've changed a lot. <laughs> we really have. Did you ever think about changing yourself and getting into digital as that monster was approaching in the 2000s? Did you ever... I, I've used <clears throat> digital cameras. I've got two. <clears throat> well, count my phone. I've got three. <laughs> I've got two Canons. <clears throat> One I use for um, copying. Um, I don't scan. I copy uh, um, negatives Okay. So with a macro lens. And the other one I take with me um, and shoot color work sometimes, um, depending on where I am. But it's not the main thing. I just take it in case... I don't know, the light's not right or something, mm -hmm. <clears throat> or it's just easy, you know, or I'm doing pictures that I'm giving to the actual people, you know, it's easier just to sort of give them some colour pictures. <clears throat> uh, no, but... I I don't really like the idea of um, digital because I think it, it lacks the, the thing that I loved about photography to begin with, what brought me into it, which is the, the sort of, it's a craft, as well as an art, it's a craft, and, uh, it, and it's engineering and it's technical. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, it, it has so much going for it, and take away part of that, take away the, the chemistry um, and, you know, the dark room, and you, you lose something, uh, you know. I mean, I'm not quite uh, Julia Margaret Cameron or one of these people who has a, wet collodion plate you know and coats it and does it all you know they, they're i mean i admire them they go right from the beginning you know <clears throat> they make up their own album and their own silver halides and they coat it on the plates and hope it won't explode while they get it into the camera um, but you, you know, know david there's it. only a handful of people listening to this podcast to know what we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> Well, once upon a time, silver nitrate was used um, uh, in the very early um, photography, and yeah. it was highly explosive, and, yeah. and it could go bang. Yeah, <laughs> and people are like going, "Wait, what? You guys use explosives?" Yes, that's what the, how they used to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, 
I'm just, I, that wasn't me though. I use uh, film, and then I've got right. nice in inert chemicals that I pour <laughs> in, and they just do this stuff for me. You mean you've never been worried putting your 120 roll onto your rolly that it would just instantly explode on you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It, it is quite shocking how this craft has started with a wet plate to now that it's ones and zeros and it's digital recorded and I can shoot it and send it to you anywhere in the world instantaneously. It is unbelievable how it's changed. Yeah, it's fabulous. I mean, you can take a camera out um, in the middle of the night and pretty much take a picture in total darkness now and still get a result. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. When you and yeah. I started, that was literally impossible. It's like, yeah. how did that happen? Yeah. What, I mean, what, <clears throat> tell me about, because we talked about it before we hit recording, and I, and I during the research, it's the fun part. The, the, the F8 group, the, the project in which you started, where was that? Was that just out of love? Was that something like you guys sat together and said, hey, let's do this? Um, it was a, a thing that I'd been thinking about. And I knew that on Instagram there were a number of things called collectives. <clears throat> there was one called the Northern Collective, I think. And I approached them and said, I don't live up north, but I'd be interested in joining. Um, but they, they, it didn't come to anything. And I've noticed they've since, um, I don't know, disappeared. But um, uh, I thought it would be good to set up something a bit like that. And um, we worked out what the structure would be. And we had a name. We called ourselves F8 Collective. Uh, <clears throat> and then after about a month, I said to my friend, I'd like to change it to F8 documentary because I believe that it should say what you are or what you do on the tin, <clears throat> you know? So the moment you see it, you know what it is. Mm -hmm. So we changed the name and uh, we had the structure and we started to get a few kind of well-known guests and it took off and um, it became something which was, um, well, it is purely for love. Don't make any money out of it. Um, the magazine is published by a, a publisher, Fistful of Books. I give them a PDF of the finished thing. Uh, we all get a couple of copies of the magazine if you're a contributor. Um, but that's it. He, the other guy, he makes the profit if there isn't any. Uh, and I help him sell it because I want to see my pictures in print. So I've been in all 16 of the uh, issues um, because I was trying to get work published and the publishers kept on saying, no, we, we're not interested or we can't do that for you. Or magazines, no, we're not, we don't really want that work at the moment. So I thought, well, I've got to do something. So that's why the magazine started up, just so I could see my work on paper. Right. It's totally <laughs> different having it on paper than having it on your computer. It's just, it's not the same at all. Having it on a nightstand or handing it to someone, someone as a gift, it makes all the difference in the world. And it's a really... I think it's a really good quality finish. You know, it's on very good quality paper. It's got a slightly stiffer cover. It's um, what's called perfect binding, sort of glue binding. It's not stapled. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the the pictures are, are vibrant if they're in colour and or they're sort of good good saturation, black and white. Uh, they all have um, they might they've, they've definitely got captions, but some have got uh, long narratives associated with them, like 
that's one of the reasons I started with my friend because we thought long narratives were a good idea because they help people understand a bit more about the photo story and and, and what was going on or why you did it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, and so you know it's it's now it's a labour of love and it's grown and quite a lot of people you know would like to be members of fa or would like to have their work published in the magazine uh, we run a competition every so often and the uh, people are delighted when they um they're shortlisted down to 20 for on instagram and then the winning six are put in the magazine with one overall winner and they're you know they're delighted you know they can't thank you enough for it <laughs> which is great you know i love it it's <laughs> It's so good to feel like you're doing something that, you know, people really are into. Right. Do you guys have a tight photo community in the UK? <clears throat> what do you mean? Like where, where at least you communicate and you, 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 I don't know if you have gatherings or especially if you lived in London, um, where there, you know, you guys would get together and banter and show work. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> um, there are some. Uh, I mentioned Martin Parr, the Martin Parr Foundation down in uh, Bristol in something called the Paintworks. <laughs> they have regular meetings, talks, exhibitions. Quite a few uh, people I know go to them. But also, um, I suppose on Instagram, there's a kind of, you know, you have a group of people who you mm -hmm. like their stuff. They like yours. You talk, make comments. Wow. But I'm not a member of a photographic society or okay. anything really yeah we've got a lot here um especially where i live in orange county there's a group of of people and they're not professionals they're just the orange county photographic society and they just do it because they love photography and they go out and they do little trips uh to national parks or they'll you know you know parks there's quite, there's quite a lot of those in the country um there's the royal photographic society and there's also the center for british photography um that's a new one in london um and there are sort of camera clubs in right. you know, most towns um <clears throat> but i don't tend to i i don't belong to them because most of the time they want to talk about gear <laughs> when <laughs> right. they meet up <clears throat> what what digital camera lens do you use <clears throat> or and also the work is a sort of mixed bag you know i work it on projects long-term projects often and most of the people in these sort of clubs are interested in, you know, they're hobbyists, so they like to go out and see what they can do with the camera. Yeah. And that's as far as it goes. <clears throat> uh, so the sort of people I need to associate with, um, I, you know, I mean, I have conversations online with them occasionally, but, um, you know, we're busy working away in our own little dark rooms doing our own thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, you know this. You've done this long enough. There's two things photographers will always talk about photo gear and they'll bitch about editors that's it they'll they love to talk about those two things that's <laughs> yeah. really easy i am jealous because you've got weather where you live you have weather you might roll your eyes and go oh snow but being in southern california we don't get weather and it doesn't you know our i when i see images of people walking through the snow or bundled up because of the cold or fog or rain, it adds elements to the imagery. And you have yeah. a lot of that. We've got nothing. We got blue skies. We barely get clouds. It's 75 all the time. It's bland. 
Yeah. <clears throat> Where, where's Orange County in? Uh, is it between San Diego and um, in LA? Yeah. So I'm I'm like thirty I'm thirty miles away from LA, south of LA. Yeah. 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 I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So like you, especially where you're at, you, mean you got these rolling, beautiful green hills. I mean, that's stunning. Yeah. And the legend skies. Yeah. 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 You're next to a national park, right? Dales National Park out there. Yeah, that's right. Oh. We're the gateway. To, we're apparently we're the gateway to it. I'm right on the edge of it. <laughs> <laughs> they should give you a key for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when... When how you have what two books? Am I correct on that? You have two books published uh, at the moment. Yeah, um, I've got one called um, Travelers um, and Gypsy Roma. Um, no, Travelers and the Appleby Horse Fair. That's one, and the other one's called um, uh, Welsh Miners or My Stick or something right. like that. The Travelers was <laughs> the first, correct? Uh, well, they're both the same time. Both okay. How much? How much work was that for you? putting those books together was that a like a just um, a time consuming it, labor of love it probably takes me about a month to put together something like that because <clears throat> they're quite small okay. um sort of 30 or 40 pictures when i do <clears throat> the f8 magazine that that probably takes me one or two full days sitting at the computer <clears throat> laying it all out but it takes longer getting all the work in and um checking it and um proofreading the text and then sort of finishing it off right you know. <clears throat> so and i'm work, currently working on a book called lockdown <clears throat> and this book <laughs> is um 12 photographers uh 14 stories documentary stories about uh, our experience of lockdown you know the ordinary person's experience and um, how do I explain it? It's it's what I call proper documentary. <clears throat> so it documents sort of thing events, um, periods of time. It's not people sitting on beds looking out of windows, <laughs> feeling depressed, or it's not people standing on the inside of their house looking out at you. You know, right? <laughs> For example, <laughs> um, it opens <clears throat> with. Um, uh, press photographer's story of COVID-1 SARS <clears throat> in Hong Kong mm -hmm. and how it came and how everyone was locked down and then suddenly it was lifted and all disappeared <clears throat> and it was a mystery. <clears throat> then it goes to um, Barry Lewis's uh, Empty London, which is he went round to all the sites of London and photographed them when there was no one there uh, because, you know, it's the first week of, or two of lockdown. Right. So you're seeing sites that you would never have seen because you know there'd be millions of people in the way <clears throat> then it covers things like birth uh, one um alan cape town's story of um his child being born just at the start of lockdown and how difficult that was <clears throat> um and childhood we've got um uh, a series by this woman who photographed children and then got them to write their thoughts about lockdown to go with it um uh, teenage um graduation we've got very well-known photographer alice tomlinson's work where she photographed on large plate cameras each um of 40 odd um teenagers who couldn't go to their graduation but are wearing their graduation stuff oh wow 
Uh, we've got uh, disability, um, homelessness. I've got a series in it, which is um, my sort of project about homeless and locked down, spending three months with a guy camping in the woods near me. Now, how did you do that without getting in trouble? You know, because you're supposed to be locked down. <clears throat> well, you were allowed to go out for your exercise once a day. Okay. And you're supposed so, to a homeless camp. <laughs> I, I took the dog with me and went out for my exercise once a day and, <clears throat> and met up with him <clears throat> and did that. Um, we've got uh, a, a, a care home story about, very sad story about um, a woman who's, dad was in a care home and a relationship between him and the woman and another one called a lockdown garden which was um a similar sort of thing it's about a garden where these people would go because they were allowed to go out all these old people um what cancer guy developed cancer and then um it's his journey of through lockdown with cancer but at the same time he also did a story called um uh all in a day's work, which is a book about the um, NHS, which was in all the newspapers, so it's, it's really well known. Wow! For that. And um, another one, perhaps my favourite, is um, uh, uh, Kieran Doherty's series of, of he documents his parents that he lived with for the sort of two or three years. He's a press photographer, but there was obviously no work. He shot the entire thing on old, outdated film. Um, it's got, and he's, he's working up to a book of it soon. And I've got another series which we, we haven't okayed it yet. Not sure if it's going to go in. It's um, a lockdown funeral. So my dad died the a week after, um, or two weeks after lockdown. Um, so I photographed his funeral where only ten people could turn up. Oh my goodness. So there's a range of it, it's it, it's really quite moving and quite sort of hard hitting stuff. I'm sure I've missed one or two stories out, but um, uh, that's due to be published in hardback in um, sort of sometime in the springtime. Okay, who's uh, who's putting it together? Are you guys individually? I, I'm, I'm doing the entire thing. <clears throat> I put the whole idea together. I advertised for people to, to give me their stories. I put it together, pitched for a publisher and an ex exhibition, got nowhere with the exhibition, got nowhere with the publisher for a year or so, and then finally got my own publisher of F8 Documentary interested. Um, you couldn't get an exhibitor to show that work? They're, no, they're not interested. Maybe once the book's out, <clears throat> we might be able to come back to it. Jesus. All the crap that I see in museums and they won't show that? Well, maybe once it's published, uh, maybe you could go around some of your um, great places in L.A. or something like that. Absolutely. Be my age. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call up the Annenbergs and see what they can do. I would love to break into America. I mean, you know, this, we've got so much. Well, I've got such a lot of sort of great documentary photography, which I'm sure America is, you know, it's a great market. You're like the French, you know, French and Americans seem to love photography, especially black and white mm -hmm. sort of classical stuff. Right. <laughs> do you, do you ever get over to the other side of, you know, into France and the Spain and, and spend much time over there shooting? <clears throat> Not really. No. Um, we did go to France. <clears throat> went to France this summer for a week um, uh, in June, July. Um, but didn't really take any pictures. I was just over there drinking wine. Really. 
<laughs> you took a time out, put the camera down, and picked up a glass. It was poor dough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think in any part of your career that maybe you would translate over and shoot video, shoot film, do documentary <clears throat> work um, on a camera? Really. Not really. I liked using a video camera and I talk film and TV production, but um, I I just like, um, I think it's because it took far too long, actually, before you get anywhere with a result or good result. Mm -hmm. But um, photography has always been my passion, my love. Right. Okay, so we talked about it again, like I said, before we hit record, and this I find fascinating is this, your upcoming project with the uh, the the punks and the Teddy Boys. Okay, so you tell me about this because I think this is stunning that the, these older punks are getting together and they're they're going at it again like they're twenty <laughs> running through London. Um, well, the project <laughs> is called um, <clears throat> Modern Tribes of England. I started it five years ago. I suspect I shall be. Um, finishing it just as I lie down in my coffin. <laughs> oh, someone else might carry it on for me. Oh, don't say <laughs> that, David. Don't say that. <laughs> I don't think it can ever be finished. Um, as I said, it's um, like my it's my version of Edward Steichen's Family of Man. <clears throat> it's um, an attempt to sort of show a side of British um, culture, <clears throat> British com social fabric, um and basically celebrate who we are and what we do <clears throat> but it's also about um the the strength and the benefits that you can get by being a member of a group <clears throat> um you know a lot of people talk about being isolated but um for example morris dancers if you go out and hang out with morris dancers <clears throat> that that's a quintessentially english thing <clears throat> these are guys who well, the ones that you might have seen in America are, you know, the ones with the bells and the hankies and the sticks and uh, they hop around doing traditional <clears throat> folk dancing <clears throat> with um, sort of stringed and instruments and melonium. <clears throat> and they're, they're just having such fun. And in fact, um, I'm not quite sure if they do it for the dancing or the drinking because um, they go from pub to pub and sometimes <laughs> in between drinking they do the occasional dance. Uh, but but the so the groups, all the different groups in this in the series, I've, I think there's about 14 groups that I'm working on at the moment, um, are part of it, what makes up um, British society, and. Um, some have been around for uh, <clears throat> hundreds of years. Some have been around since the 50s. Some are much newer. <clears throat> um, and so tackling a group like mods, for example, <clears throat> I started to photograph them. And then I found that there are, you know, they can be categorized into <clears throat> mods who have been around since the 70s, you know, with the real thing. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> then there's mods the new mods who like the music and the gear. And then there's leisure mods who just like riding around on a scooter <clears throat> with a parker on. And they, they join this group on the day when they're all having a meet up and ride into a particular town. <laughs> I realized that that's a good way of um, categorizing some of these groups. So for example, I photographed goths. Now goths 
are a, a derivation originating from punks and skinheads um, in the late 70s, and they're into sort of what we call gothic music, but basically they dress in sort of what you might call like Dracula-type outfits, and they have bl- lots of black makeup, and um, they can be categorised as um, goths who have been around since the, since the origins in the early 80s. Then there's the ones who really love the music, especially the young ones, you know, young sort of boys and girls of sort of teenagers. They've got all the black and the spiders and the tapes, um, and they love, the you know, to listen to the, all the, the old music as well as the new goth music. And then there's the ones who just turn up for the day at Whitby or wherever it happens to be because it's a great time. Everybody in Whitby, which is known for its Bram Stoker, Dracula connections, mm-hmm. the whole town... <clears throat> There's there's like about a thousand people all all wandering around looking like they belong in Halloween or something. <laughs> <laughs> and they all they all go up to the uh, the abbey where um uh you know Bram Stoker's Lucy Westenrod met her end you know and there's there's the st- the tombstones and they all pose by the tombstones. Oh God, it's fabulous! <clears throat> it's a fabulous date. So that's a group of people who have, have, have come out of themselves and they they just love doing it. So Ted's and uh, Teddy Boys and um, what was the other one? Punk Skinhead. Yeah. Skinhead. <clears throat> That's my job for next year. I've got to find these people. I've got to get along to where it is they hang out and just see what they get up to and document them, photograph them, make nice pictures. Are they normally pretty open? I mean, you're you're a you're a good looking guy. You look very conservative. You're tall and handsome, like. Is that help that you're approached that you just walk in and I'm just I'm just a I'm a normal man with a camera don't don't mind me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you're, I, you. I don't... normally go up. I normally go up. Like, let's say, <clears throat> um, a few weeks ago, I was photographing mods. I went up to this this couple and I said, "Oh wow, you look fantastic, brilliant! I love the." drapes or the shoes or whatever yeah <laughs> i photograph you yeah uh, immediately they think oh right <clears throat> okay yeah let's let's do that so that's the approach <clears throat> yeah because i mean there's a lot of people that can just be off put like they don't want their picture taken like leave me alone man I, i'm just i'm doing my thing they'll say they'll say that <clears throat> they'll say i'd rather not yeah. so i respect that that's fine but you do look great <laughs> you sure you can't want to reconsider <clears throat> <laughs> i'll be here yeah, for no, 10 no. minutes Oh my God! But, uh, they, you know that that that's one approach. <clears throat> the other approach is is discovering them first, and then um, talking to them and telling them what you're going to do, and then arranging to meet another time. So I'm just about to embark on a a project about veterans. You have those in America. These are ex army, ex whatever you know services, right. <clears throat> and it's probably a portrait series. So um, recently, I went and uh, to an armistice. Well, I went to three armistice events and just got phone numbers and email addresses and told them what I'm doing, sent them my um, website, and um, then I'll contact them in the new year and arrange to go and sort of take their pictures. Is that a tough story when you're dealing, you know, you're, you're going from one thing with the TEDs to now you're dealing with, you know, veterans. Obviously, there's injuries possibly involved. Is that kind of switch? very 180 degrees easy for you to do or do you have to prepare yourself a little bit um 
most I wouldn't know if they were injured because <clears throat> most of them were able to sort of walk around or they might have been getting a bit old. They might have been suffering from PTSD and mm-hmm. things like that. But <clears throat> no, they would they would be um it, for me it would be tackle them in the same way as I tackle anything. I need to try and photograph you. I need to have an empathy for who you are and and what you stand for and what you've been through <clears throat> and then after that it's um okay so how are we going to do this and generally i sort of try and collaborate with them and say have you thought about how you'd like to be photographed is there any particular thing you don't want me to do yeah and then we'd go from there yeah there's um there's a friend of mine he's he's trying to photograph the remaining soldiers from world war ii because we're losing those gentlemen you know, your, yeah. your, your, your chaps were in that war and, and they're all up now well into their nineties. And the, you know, yeah. there's handfuls left where there used to be thousands and tens of thousands. And so you're trying to photograph the last remaining guys. I think the last gentleman from the attack of Pearl Harbor just passed away for us a couple of months ago. I mean, it's just, it's that period of time we lose. And so it's, it's interesting that, you know, you and I, we have this, you know, ability to, capture and create images of these people of history and so it's fun that that we get to do that and experience their lives it's you know well um these guys a guy told me the other week um he's an ex-serviceman he said every ex-serviceman automatically um, becomes a member of the british legion so the british legion is like the the one that organizes the poppy day armistice Mm -hmm. i don't know if you um uh and um, they've got their uniform, you know, they've all, all got their tie and their beret and everything. Right. Um, uh, and so I realised actually that they are another tribe. Yeah. Which is why I'm going to embark on this, because they are actually another modern tribe of England. Uh, they're not completely open. You can't just think, I'll go and join them, because you actually have to have been an ex-serviceman. But um, they're a big big tribe mm-hmm. and interesting tribe <clears throat> and they do interesting things. And so what's important about this is not just the photograph, but to have some bit of story, that, you know, that says what they've done, you know, what, how they, how they are now, what they've managed to achieve. Yeah. Tell me about the drug rehab program you're working on. <clears throat> so, um, in the city of Leeds, there's something called St. George's Crypt. And St. George's Crypt have a project called Growing Rooms. And it's basically a couple of houses. And they look after, they take in and look after about 20 um, clients who are drug addicts who have hit rock bottom. They have nowhere else to go. And they realize that they're, they're just... I've lost everything. Um, right. There's no further um, for them to go. This is it. That's the bottom. But they also realized that they want to, to get better. They want help. And this project takes them in and um, puts them on what's called the 12 step program, which is the same one that as Alcoholics Anonymous use. <clears throat> and um, they spend uh, between four to uh, 14 to 16 months, I think, with them. And during that time, um, they hopefully uh, improve, they get fitter, they come off the drugs, they understand, you know, that life has got more to offer 
it has got a religious aspect as well <clears throat> you know it it's not completely inert um but they but because it's st george's crypt but they don't thrust religion down them but <clears throat> you know they they help them understand that sometimes you know they can seek solace or um find support through a higher being or something you know spiritual <clears throat> but it gets them to a point where they are they can actually go out into the community and they can get a job and sometimes they're offered a job as a um uh on their staff uh it gets them a bank account it gets them a crb which is a criminal um check thing which enables them to do certain work because a lot of them already been in prison things like that <clears throat> and what my project is about is to um sit with each one of them they tell me their story from start to finish uh from when things first started to go wrong um often a very young age and it can take a couple of hours i then transcribe it and those stories will go into a book um and i take like a portrait of um and that along with pictures of the the st george's crypt and the growing rooms sort of set up with people working in them well well go into the book and also be an exhibition wow is it's that a two year project <clears throat> is that emotionally and physically taxing on you <clears throat> uh physically very taxing cuz I have to sit there for two hours and listen <laughs> and I've got to sort of remain interested and re remain attentive. That's quite a skill. Um, and also remain observant and hope my equipment doesn't break down. <laughs> so I've got to keep looking at it and checking it. Um, and when I listened to the story, I mean, I was in tears at the end of one story, <clears throat> this guy, we were both kind of, you know, watery eyed, you know, but he was so, glad and grateful to have been able to tell his story because he said to me you know he said this was some time into the project he was one of the first but i've done a few more he said this is the first time we've been able to sit down with someone and just tell our story you know without having a judgment or um interruption or anything it's just this is my story and you you're able to just sit there and listen no matter how long it takes and I very rarely have to ask any questions. I just start them off and say, okay, just tell me how it all started. And they begin and they just talk virtually continuously for one and a half to two hours. When you're sitting there, are you envisioning how you're going to do that portrait? Are you looking at him going, <clears throat> I want to put you in this light. I want to pose you this way. Often I'm thinking, oh God, I wish I'd taken it just then. <laughs> or just then. <clears throat> but, um, you can't do that. Um, I, yeah, I, I do. And um, afterwards, I think about, you know, how I might do it. It's important, I think, to try and do it there and then, because sometimes you lose the opportunity later. Yeah, right. Um, um, but uh, sometimes, you know, if I'm not quite happy with it, I can arrange to do it again. And I'm doing staff and um, clients, because most of the staff have been clients or have been <laughs> you know, drug addicts themselves. Wow. That is a massive project to undertake. And that is really not well, the lightest thing. Two years, and it'll probably take me another year or so, <clears throat> maybe two years That's, to complete. It's definitely not landscapes. That is a lot of work. <clears throat> well, when I started it, and um, the woman I started it with, 
um, she said, oh, so how long do you think it's take? I said, oh, probably going to take me a couple of years. She goes, really? It's going to take you that long? I said, yeah, you'd be surprised. <clears throat> also, it's just finding the time. I mean, I was so busy in the autumn, I just couldn't get back. I said I'd come back in September. I was there in August. I, I've now just arranged to go back in January. I've been too busy between <clears throat> uh, August and, and now with all sorts of other sort of projects that I've been out shooting. How far away is it? is it? Is it a trip for you for the day to go out there and come back? Uh, um, I used to go by train to, because it was in Leeds, um, to actually to the, the, the church. But now I go to one of the <clears throat> the houses. So it's a car journey. It doesn't take long. It's like about three quarters of an hour. Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. David, I am so glad you reached out to me. You know, obviously you must have followed John Free. And you saw the post that yeah. I had him on last week. Um, did you guys ever collaborate or communicate at all? How do you know no, John? I've never, never heard of him before. <clears throat> um, it's just I've just noticed he started following me, but <clears throat> no, it, I'm going to have to do a bit more research about him. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a great great guy, um, and I've always wanted to have him on. I was able to finally. Um, he's battling some illness, and he's getting better. And I'm glad we were able to communicate and, and do this. Now, now I've got an excuse to come out to was it Yorkshire Dale, right? I got, I got, I know somebody in the area. <laughs> well, if you do, I'd love to meet up. Who do you know in the area? <laughs> A farmer. <laughs> uh, or if you come out to LA, you let me know, and and yeah. we'll hook up for sure. But. Um, yeah, I, I wish you the luck in, in in all your projects, in your books. I'll make sure we, you know, we link everything up for everybody to see because you've got great work, and you got you have work that is meaningful. There's one thing when you're just taking pictures, and you're just taking happy snaps. But like your miners, your project, your tribe stuff, that is that is the essence of that moment in time. There's people in those photographs, especially those buildings, like you were saying, like you thought maybe you do a Hockney and put it together, those storefronts and stuff. Those are priceless looking images. Those hardy looking people in 1970 in those storefronts that will never look like that again. It's funny. Um, I've just started that project again. Did you really? Uh, I've got about 10 shops ready to go around. They're all small independent shops. There are all the people who look like those people. And when I take the pictures, I bet you'll say, hey, were these shot in the 1970s? And I'll say, no, 2024, <laughs> because of the style and the way I'll do it. <clears throat> well, yeah, but there's there's no LED lighting involved, like in their windows. There's not a big flashing open sign. or no. and, and they have to, they've got to work, because it's going to be not shops of the 1970s. It's just going to be shops. Right. So they've all got to hang together. So that's why I'll be shooting them. So they kind of look like they all hang together. <laughs> so they become sort of timeless, really. And that's the thing about those shops. They are timeless. They're, you know, I just love going in them. The, the, you know, they're little shops that are full up with stuff, and it's all higgledy-piggledy. And you say, have you got something? And they rummage around, they pull it out, and they go, is this what you're looking for? You go, yeah, that's exactly what I need, you know. <laughs> uh, ah. And they're, they're much better than the large supermarket stores where you go in and no one knows what anything is. You say, have you got a... Um, sort of a bulb holder with a screw thread end that I can use for a lamp standard. What, mate? Oh, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so jealous. We have nothing like that here. Nothing. Not at all. Oh, my God. Okay, so if somebody wrote you a blank check and said, David, 
what project do you want to do? We'll publish it. Here's a blank check. What what do you, what would what would you do? Where would you go? You know, when you said to me, uh, "Is there anything you don't want me to don't ask me?" <laughs> you put me on the spot. Like something. I tell you, well, it it would be it would be difficult. But if I had the money and the time, um, I would like to go back to Ireland um, and sort of find the travellers because there's. I photographed travellers in England and back in the 80s, I photographed travellers. But there's a lot of them in Ireland knocking around. And um, I just love them. I think they're so fascinating. I just, and I, and I feel like I get on with them all right. You know, <clears throat> there's something about them. Like one, one guy said to me, I said, I'm a photographer, I'm doing this project about travellers. Can I come into this field to photograph? Because there's, you know, a load of you camped here. Mm-hmm. Do you like Gypsy? I said, yeah, I think you're brilliant. Very fascinating. All right, then you can come in. <laughs> but, okay, isn't that sweet, though, that you have you have a creative avenue and you can make that connection with them and then there's something? Like you, that's why we're so special in what we get to do. We can make that connection. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. Also, I th- like I go back to the trust thing. They wouldn't do it if they didn't think they could trust you. Yeah. So you have to sort of start by sort of somehow conveying <clears throat> to them that you're serious about what you're doing and also you're going to treat them and the pictures seriously, <clears throat> yeah. not just, you know, be frivolous and like the paparazzi. All right. Well, if I win the lotto, I'm going to send you a blank check and you're going to Ireland. <laughs> yeah. That'll be nice. Thank you. <laughs> David, thank you so much for this time. I, I'm I'm glad we got to meet. Your work is fantastic. Your books look fun. Your images are are beautiful and timeless. You know, you keep up the good work. Um, you know that stuff you're doing with the with the drug rehab center. What you want to do with the vets? That's that's wonderful, beautiful, heartwarming stuff. Yeah, and if if I can just find places who are interested in exhibiting my work. <clears throat> In Orange County, <laughs> we could sort something out. <clears throat> uh, I I will make some calls and see what I can do. Hey, hopefully someone listens to this podcast here and says, "Hey, we'll give you a shot. We'll bring you in because that's all you need is just one person." That's right. Yeah, yeah. Your um, you guys in America, well, and women in America, everyone would love to see this work because um, you know you're looking at a different world. You know, you're looking at something else. You know that you're familiar with because there's America's got a lot of similarities to to England, but you know there's a lot of differences. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if people could find could find your work, where are they where would you want them to go to your website? They can go to my website, um, which is www.davidwrites.photography. Um, they can go to Instagram, which is uh, Instagram at David Gilbert Wright. They can go to Instagram at F8 Documentary. Okay. And they can go to Instagram at David Wright in Colour. <laughs> <laughs> and you might see me on Twitter as well. Um, David uh, Gilbert WR1. But I can send you those. If nope, you I got them. Me. You're right. You nailed them. That was pretty good. It's not <laughs> yeah. too often you go to your own Twitter handle, but you nailed it. WR1. <laughs> 
All right, I'll make sure I put everything in the link and everybody's going to go and you're going to get flooded and people are going to be buying books and finding exhibit space for <laughs> you and you're going to be busy as can be. Yeah, thanks. That'd be great. And I'm sure the publishers will like it. You enjoy the rest of your evening. Have a glass of wine. Spend some time with your wife. Warm up next to a fire. And, I'm going to go and drink my homemade Yorkshire bitter. <laughs> I've got a barrel of it ready for Christmas. <laughs> You have a wonderful Christmas, David. Thank you so much for this time, my friend. And um, it was, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with David Wright. If you enjoyed this episode, please click and hit the like button to become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram. And you can find all of our past shows on the website at justgoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.